There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. Where do I begin? The sweet love story of how great a love can be. The sweet love story that is older than the sea. Welcome to John Richardson and (laughs) the Future Knots. I am John Richardson. I am joined by the Future Knots, Mark Stevenson. Hello. And the spirit of Shirley Bassey. (laughs) Hello. That was a beautiful way to start. (laughs) It was a totally unexpected way to start. Uh, well, you were singing away so happily, and I just thought, let's start recording and let's have that. You know, it's something different, isn't it? I will admit, recent podcasts have sometimes tended towards the bleak. And what could be a more beautiful juxtaposition than a man in lockdown tending to a slog singing a song that moves him? Mark, uh, would you care to respond in tune? Or shall we get started? Oh, it's a tough one. Uh, where would I go from Shirley Bassey? I don't know. Perhaps, perhaps we'll close on a song from you. So that's uh, reason enough to stay tuned to this four-hour education <laughs> extravaganza. This is episode five. Um, I always start by saying, how are you? Neither of you knows which to go first, so I'll make it simple this week. I will ask about the only two things anyone gives a shit about. Ed, how is your rancid, slipper-eating fox? <laughs> He's fine. Uh, I watched him. He made eye contact with me as he was taking a poo uh, the other day, which was really charming. Uh, so he's gone on from footwear intimidation to now defecation intimidation. That is intimidation. There's only one way to respond. You know what it is. <laughs> Get out on the patio, drop him and show him what you've got. Uh, Mark, how are your um, painful, rotting teeth? Uh, they're now being controlled seemingly by antibiotics, but I have to basically take antibiotics until the lockdown is done in order to stay sane. Oh, wow. Well, that's exciting. Um, my auntie Pam, I spoke to yesterday. Um, I don't think she expected this conversation would make the podcast introduction, but she recommended clove bud oil. Oh, yeah. No, I've had that. But unfortunately, it's the tooth, not the gum that's aching. So it's deep inside my jaw and it's referring all around my face. So I've been saying to people sort of on Zoom meetings, if I suddenly clutch my face and make a pained expression, it's not something that you've said. Well, it might be, but it probably isn't. It's probably the extreme pain that I'm suffering. Ah, um, we're already into extreme pain. You see how quickly it goes from a song. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the extreme pain I'm in. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for all your uh, thoughts and your emails on the last episode on energy. Email of the week, I have to say, goes to uh, Uma, 
who uh, emails in to say, Hi, John, Mark and Ed. My name is Uma, I'm 20 and I'm from Pakistan. Sentence two, I hope you'll read this in an accent like you did for that Kiwi bloke in episode two. (laughs) Slightly offensive use of the term Kiwi bloke there. I love listening to the podcast because it's relevant to the current situation and people are actually concerned about the end of the world. So reassurance there. I'm probably one of seven people who know about the podcast in my country and have taken it upon myself to advertise it. And I can safely say I'm responsible for four of the seven people who do. Um, if you could, could you do an episode on the waste garbage problem in the world and how it can be used to our benefit? Cheers, Uma. So we've what only got an another email. 150 million Pakistanis to reach then. Uh, yeah. So Uma's got Uma's got his kind of promotional task well cut out there. Go, go, Uma. Yeah, well, I see that Chris, who we know who Uma's referring to from the previous episode, did, did also email back to say that he did feel that he were, probably was speaking for the nation when he said that uh, we liked it. So, um, you know, perhaps Uma can be our official representative in Pakistan. Absolutely. We just need an envoy in each country. I mean, New Zealand is, is kicking off. We're now of a few listeners. Julia has sent a lengthy email where she asks questions about 3D printing of food, uh, whether at some point we'll see an urban food environment where people in cities are forced to eat food that can be grown in an urban environment like mushrooms and hydroponically grown food. She asks whether we'll see an urban way of living, given that London and Tokyo now share more in common than London and towns like Deal, uh, which are uh. only 100 miles away. I mean, she's basically, she's got her own podcast ready to go, Juliet. One thing we can say about Juliet, she's clearly locked down by herself. <laughs> or, or with someone she's desperate to ignore. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cry for help. It's like, well, you know when you're emailing the future notes several pages? Yeah. <laughs> I've just had another thought to send to the future notes. I'm aware we're mid-coitus, but uh, I just want to fire this one off while it's, while it's in my head. Um, so if you want to uh, interrupt a sexual experience to email uh, the future notes, then you can do so, and here are the details. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letters swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. So we move on to this week's topic, which is uh, education, and specifically at the moment, I guess, education on lockdown. Uh, Nothing funnier than, if you haven't seen it, uh, Andrew Jeffrey, who is a former school inspector, currently homeschooling his two kids, uh, has done his own Ofsted, or Mockstead, as he calls it, on himself and uh, it does not look good for Andrew, I have to say. His, his Ofsted says, The head teacher is eminently qualified, but regularly seen wearing nothing but dressing gowns and underpants. This sets a very poor example to the pupils. Also in the evening, both members of the staff can be observed drinking alcohol in front of the pupils. <laughs> the key stage two pupil was recently caught playing Fortnite and then claimed it was a geography project. He was excluded for two weeks. Um, so a, a good time to talk about education, a good time to assess the importance of teachers in our society and their role. I have to say, we did, as we usually do, put the topic out to you for questions. Usually what follows is quite a sort of uh, a list of intelligent questions and uh, reasoned and thoughtful responses. This week, the, the, the Twitter feed has already turned into something of a sort of right stuff phone-in. 
Uh, so when we were put out the question, Ryan responded straight away with, there's nothing we educators love more than to hear what people who don't work in education think needs improving. Ha ha! No hate to anyone, I promise, but it'll be funny to hear the comments. And Lids uh, sends in, school system hasn't changed with the times. Secondary kids need to start later in the day and have more say. Too many can't cope with the outdated routines. Parents should take more responsibility. So that could possibly be the answer and we don't need to do a podcast. But uh, Mark <laughs> and Ed, what do you make of that? Well, I mean... In all the areas that Ed and I work in, you know, whether it's healthcare, energy, or whatever, the one place where I found, and I don't know if you agree with me, Ed, the most vitriolic debate, the most hate, the most unreasonable insults and, and uh, slings and arrows thrown, thrown across various sort of ideological divides is education. Like yeah. people get really, really upset about it. And I think one of the reasons for that is because Every single one of us has probably been through some form of education. So we think we're experts because we've all had it done to us or we've been through yeah. it. Terrible first-hand experience, haven't we? As I say, everyone can have a view on energy. Um, hopefully your experience of the healthcare system is relatively limited in an ideal world, but most of us have had a decade or more uh, of the school system. And so therefore, we all got a first-hand perspective, which is worth sharing because we know. Yeah. So everything about uh, education is every debate about education is just tainted with everybody's autobiography and then trying to sort of justify who they are and where they've got to. And, you know, from uh, the reason that, you know, I'm, I'm a terrible person is because my education system failed me up to nothing wrong with the education system. Look at me. I'm I'm schools minister. <laughs> <laughs> As an example, you know, I was in a meeting with Nick Gibb and he said that the thing that's ruined education in this country is the creativity agenda. So that gives you a kind of a flavour of the of the sort of debate we're having at yeah. all levels. People going out and being creative. Don't you just hate that? That's fascinating. Perhaps I should meet Nick Gibb because that is exactly, I rate teachers very highly and I have had very few bad ones. But the creativity agenda is the thing I think needs pushing further, personally. But we'll come to that. Um, I shall throw in my two penneth. In, as we've learned on the podcast, a frank and unwitty manner as is my want. Um, we start, as ever, with uh, how fucked are we? This is usually where I, in a fairly good mood, throw to the two of you for some witty parlance about how bad the situation is, thinking it's not that bad. I've learnt my lesson this week, so here we have... That's an Ockentosh and three wood, ready to go. A nice single malt. Um, <laughs> just so I can bounce straight back. And I'm going to see which of the two of you can depress me the most. So rather than just ask for a... This is a competition now. Mark and Ed, who can um, shit me up the most about the current state of education? Who wants to go first? Wow. I'm just going to get a whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> the deep breath is a sign that somebody's ready. I'll start because in my last book... Yeah! Uh, straight in there. Uh, I wrote about education <laughs> quite a lot. And it's bad. Uh, and it's really bad because you've got a child, have you not? Elsie? I have, yes. And and does Elsie ask a lot of questions? She does, yes. Yes, and that's just my four-year-old and Ed, Claire yes. Fade. Does she ask a lot of questions? Uh, <laughs> yes, she, she said to me, this, why are you so silly, Daddy? <laughs> so the point is, um, kids are naturally curious learners. It's everything they want to do. Uh, and you'll often hear this complaint from, from parents of young children, which is, oh, my God, my kids have so many questions. And sometimes I reply to that um, by saying, well, don't worry, by the time they've been to school, they will have stopped. <laughs> and people kind of, people, but so people laugh at that. And why they laughed at it, because as you know, John, people laugh at the truth. Yes, because and, it's incredibly bleak. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how fucked we are. When you think about it, you take uh, human beings who are naturally curious 
sociable learning machines who cannot wait to poke their nose or fingers into, into the new thing. And by the time they've come out of school, most of us think that learning is a chore. It's a job we don't want to do. And we've become slightly disenfranchised and bored with the world. Now that is an extraordinary achievement um, that, that, that you can come out of a learning institution or, or a system of learning, basically thinking, I never want to be in a formal education setting again. I don't know about you, but when I finished uh, my final exam and my final educational establishment, I was like, thank fuck for that, because I cannot bear to learn this way and be forced into this thing. And you see it. So if you look at Gallup, we often quote on this show, do this survey of, of, of American schools. And they say, you know, if elementary school, you've got 76% of kids are still engaged, you know. And, and if you look at primary schools, you've got a lot of free play. You've got a lot of questioning. They're not too restricted. Middle school, it drops to about 61% engaged. And then by the time they've left high school, more than half the students are not engaged with their learning at all. Now, if you were to run a business on that basis, that half of your customers didn't care about your product, you'd be in trouble. If you were doing a gig, John, and sort of 56% of the audience were like, well, this is shit, um, it wouldn't be considered a success. <laughs> <laughs> and those figures don't include the 7% of students, both here and in the US, that drop out completely. So it's a whole other 7% that are just not there. And there's these comparisons between sort of school and prison. You know, they're both authoritarian structure. They have a dress code. They emphasize silence and order. You know, everybody walks in lines. There's a loss of autonomy, abridged freedoms, no input in decision-making, set times, bells ringing, all that kind of stuff. It, we've, it seems to me, and, and, and again, the problem with talking about education, everybody has this personal experience, is that when you think back to your school days, the things you love and remember have got n- almost nothing to do with the lessons. You know, it's about the friends you made and the social context, but actually the education itself was the thing that you kind of f- forget or want to forget. And that, if that's not completely fucked, I don't know what is. It's a good contender for winner. Uh, Ed's going to have to go some way <laughs> to beat the complete disenfranchisement of an entire generation. But Ed, can do this, Ed can do this with some authority because Ed has also been a teacher. Uh, yeah, oh, I have actually. Wow. So I did actually spend a year as a volunteer teacher when I was 18 uh, in Jamaica, working in a, a secondary school there, St. Mary's College and above rocks in St. Catherine. Um, and I had I had 48 um, kids in my class, uh, which was a kind of a disciplinary challenge, if nothing else. Mm. And it was extraordinary. And I, and I, I completely empathise with what Mark was saying there, because, you know, even at the age of 18, I was cocky enough to think that I would be able to have a go at teaching in a way that I would like to have learnt. So, you know, I was attempting to do engaging things with those kids. And even in the kind of the strictures of the Jamaican educational system, which is obviously a bit more uh, laissez-faire in some ways than the UK. And it was also a bit Victorian, to be honest. Some of my other teaching colleagues were basically doing the kind of three R's, arithmetic, writing, and whatever their third R is, (laughs) reading. Reading, Uh, writing, (laughs) arithmetic, isn't it? So tell, tell us more. Tell us more about how this first year in teaching went. Yeah, he's commenting on education and he can't remember what the third R is. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, the, the experience there, it, it was exactly that curiosity. I had three different classes. So I had a kind of, they were streamed classes. And my top class were kind of completely like ravenous for, for knowledge and information and would sort of hang on you every word and were totally engaged and dedicated. The middle class were the, the most fun to teach because they were still sort of engaged, but they were fun. And there was a, quite a bit of banter and exchange and playfulness. And then the third class, yeah, I was lucky if I could just keep them 
vaguely quiet in order to try and instill any knowledge at all. One of the things that uh, you're talking about there is this idea of streaming. And that's one of the problems we have. So everybody thinks that streaming is a good idea, that the smart kids should all help each other and whatever. But if you put people in various boxes, it kind of reinforces the problem we have with education. So you set, you put everybody in a, in a box that says, oh, well, you're, you're in the, the thick set. Well, um, they end up sort of living that, that narrative. And uh, we'll come on to this later. We'll talk about the work of John Hattie. And actually, we find out that streaming actually doesn't really help anybody. And actually, you need to mix kids up. Otherwise, they all end up in this narrative about themselves. It's one of the big problems with education. But I think the, the big thing for me, and obviously I'm not going to try and compete with Mark on this one, is I think we're sort of trying to produce kids on a, on a factory-type model. We're just producing people without engaging the the head, heart, and hand, as my friend Liz Robinson at Big Education calls it. You, you know, and and the context that in which we're producing these kids is changing so rapidly, and the system seems to have a locked-in inability to change anything like the pace required. Um, and we're all sort of agreed that it doesn't quite work. But then we wildly diverge on what the potential solutions are, which means you get all of this contradiction, anger, fury, emotional, vitriol. And, and, and because it's the fate of young people's lives, it's understandably incredibly loaded. Uh, and so we end up in this sort of huge bun fighting um, exercise and the, and the people who are really suffering are the young people themselves. Up to 40% of the current jobs we do are likely to be automated in the next 20 mm. years. And these are going to be routine cognitive jobs. So these jobs like, you know, claims processing or uh, telephone call centers or whatever. And what we've been doing is we've, we're marking kids on their ability to do things that the machines are going to outperform us at in a silicon heartbeat. So we're training kids to be uh, like machines, just as the machines are learning to act a bit more like humans. And of course, that's problematic for the whole economy. So the Economist Intelligence Unit do this thing called the um, Automation Readiness Index, where they kind of look at how nations are getting ready for the kind of this AI revolution. And they say the lack of engagement between policymakers, industry, educational specialists, and st- other stakeholders is alarming. The policy response is nascent, even in the top-ranked countries. So even the top-ranked countries, and we're ninth out of the top 10, they're saying even in those countries, there's a simple, massive disconnect between what's needed by employers, by people, by society, and what the education system is teaching. And I was with the Department for Education uh, just before the lockdown, um, an internal conference sort of challenging them a bit. And they're all lovely people. But it was very striking to me that the idea that they might innovate and try something new or radical or or experiment with education just wasn't in their lexicon. They're they're kind of managing a process that's been there for so long. And they're they're all kind of doing a good job in one sense, but the actual very, very big questions about education aren't really being answered. And the reason I think that they're not being answered is because they're just so controversial. People listening to this podcast right now have either decided that me and Ed are geniuses who should be hailed and put in charge of education or a complete, absolute, nonsensical, liberal, wishy-washy buffoons who should be hung, drawn and quartered. And that should be the lesson we should be teaching society that these kind of fools need to be shot and shot quickly. Mm. Here, here. I mean... Um... Sorry, I don't want to show my colours. Yeah, I had that effect when I went on Farming Today where someone tweeted, goes, I am just about to throw my radio at the kitchen wall. Excellent. Very Alan Partridge upsetting the farmers. You know, when we go to telly, that is an episode I want to see. I am also from Norfolk, remember, so you have to be careful about referencing up with the partridge. (laughs) Is it worth having one massive caveat now? And I think the way that conversation flow did the job, but this is not, 
this podcast is not an assessment of or a statement on teachers or the quality of teaching. No, definitely. Or do you think that is a factor? No, I, th- I think teachers are, are, are pretty much hugely dedicated. I mean, I think one thing we all can be in, in fundamental agreement with right now in the kind of lockdown um, era is the fact that we all have a newfound respect for the teaching profession uh, and the way that they are able to in- attempt to engage even within the constraints of Ofsted inspections and the system itself and the curriculum to a- entertain and enthuse our kids in any way, shape or form because that's a, that's a, pretty, a pretty incredible task. Yeah, with education, again, what happens with so many of the systems we deal with, everybody's doing a good job. And we'll come on to that later, actually. There are very few things in education you can do that that are detrimental. So everybody's doing a good job, but the context within which it operates is no longer fit for purpose. So it's very hard to get in there and say, look, you need to change. Because people go, well, why are you getting at me? Because I'm... I'm doing a good job, whether they're working for the Department for Education or whether they're, whether they're a math teacher. And we see, and we see it a lot, don't we? And I mean, and we see this in every sector we look at. But I mean, we talked about some of the perverse incentives around the energy and the farming system in previous episodes. But when you get the same things in in education, where the things that we measure are the things that actually lead to completely perverse outcomes. So, mm. I mean, a classic one would be you know, something like excluding challenging pupils from schools in order to maintain exam performance results, you know, and that's those kind of perverse incentives are actually got nothing to do with the, for the benefit of the kids. So um, moving on then from how fucked are we? Again, lovely stuff, really. Um, <laughs> whiskey gone. Stevenson wins this week. Um, <laughs> yes. We move on to why are we fucked and what you said there is basically a system that has failed to adapt and change when you say the educational system hasn't kept up was it ever doing the job perfectly and fit for purpose or is it is it always about changing to adapt to the situation as it is well it's interesting because if you look back if we take it from a personal perspective so you know i'm 47 years old uh, and i've spent my entire life pretty much my adult career as an environmentalist in some way shape or form and at school, I received virtually no environmental education whatsoever. So the thing that I've dedicated my life to uh, was completely lacking from my education, mm. even though the challenge would have been abundantly clear throughout the 70s and 80s and becoming ever more so. And yet I received nothing. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I find now is you know, people think that I'm creative or whatever. And I get asked in because, you know, I can talk about all sorts of different subjects. And it's not that I'm particularly smart. It's just that I'm broad in that I, you know, I I wander around all sorts of different subjects and individuals and try and learn and be curious about Mm. them. I've still managed to maintain that. But that's the very sort of thing that is not really liked at school. What they do is they split the world up into subjects and say, oh, you can't ask that question now. You have to ask that question at, you know, two o'clock this afternoon in Mr. Smith's class. And oh, that question isn't in the curriculum. So stop asking. It's really annoying. We don't have a place to answer that question. And, you know, employers are crying out for people who can think across boundaries because the world as we know as we talk about in this podcast is is largely fucked and therefore we need some creative thinking to unfuck it but we've got an education system that you know literally crushes creativity out of people i mean by example you know if you want to learn the things that machines can't do those uniquely human skills of creativity thinking of a new idea uh, working collaboration in a team that kind of stuff where do you learn that stuff well you probably learn it most in in subjects like you know, arts and team sports. And yet those are the subjects that we kind of say are at the bottom of the curriculum. They're for the kids that aren't going to be academic or succeed. They're nice to haves, but those soft, wishy-washy skills aren't really important in an academic career. And actually Mm. what we're finding is those are exactly the sort of skills we need. Now, I'm not decrying, by the way, any of the other subjects. I mean, I'm a massive geek, as you know, listeners can probably tell. I'm in the sort of person who reads their son to sleep with the Principa Mathematica. 
Um, which, by the way, is top tip. You know, about one minute into number theory, <laughs> you can absolutely have a three or four year old fast asleep. Uh, I find Girdle's incompleteness theorem a particular favourite for getting them into the snoozy, snoozy land. But what I what I found was, and I think Ed, you've had the same experience. I know you did, John. Is like at school, you were asked to choose between sort of being sciencey and academic or being arty, and actually, you need a mix of both in today's world to solve any kind of problem. Yeah. I mean, it's about being stuffed into boxes, isn't it? But forced to choose. I remember that, you know, that at the age of 16, when you're supposed to make the decisions, which will obviously define a lot of the way that your life might then pan out. And I remember saying to my my head of department, I said, I want to do biology, chemistry and art at A-level. And he took one look at me and said, you can't do that. You know, you need to do three sciences or you need to do arts. Um, and I sort of stuck to my guns and I managed to scrape into a university degree because I only had two science A-levels. But that's where my passion was. I, I was exactly that kind of don't want to be stuck in the box interdisciplinarian. I wanted to do arts and science together uh, because I I could feel, I guess, even at that stage, I wanted to have both worlds as, as part of my education. Yeah, well, I'll echo that point because I did Spanish, French and maths as my A-levels and precisely the same thing, sort of wanted to do a bit of everything appreciated the sort of clinical nature of maths that there was a right answer it's nice to know when you're right or wrong but also wanted the linguistic side and the point at which I got most frustrated was actually on the linguistic side not only I mean the fact that you referenced being stuffed into a box my maths lessons and the science lessons were in a new building that had been built at the top of the school specifically for technology and science my Spanish lessons were literally underneath the stage of the assembly hall because there were only four of us doing uh, A-level Spanish. So we had to go through the assembly hall under a little door like um, hobbits and go <laughs> under the stage to have lessons in a stinking sort of room. And I've recently started emailing some of my old teachers and asked them about, you know, that was frustrating as a student. What, what does that do for you as a teacher to see that other teachers are in a brand new building, you know, for their subject and you are being told, just do it, just do it in that cupboard there, that'll be fine. But the point at which I got frustrated with the syllabus was that my language questions within the language would be about the death penalty, they'd be about mortality, they'd be about um, you know masculinity and feminism and things like that. But I was never encouraged to have an original idea on those themes. All you're being marked on is at any point in this essay, does he correctly use the future conditional tense? And that's another way. And I just thought, well, I'm, I'm telling somebody who already knows this things they already know and I'm not actually being asked a new question and I found that even up to uni when I got to uni I sort of stuck with it and stuck with it even at uni I found I was still doing vocab tests and I'd written uni in my mind as this great place of free thinkers where you're doing research you're not having lessons and it was the same first year of uni was sat on wooden chairs in an old building doing language tests and being asked to learn vocab on certain topics and you know as you said earlier Mark it just I just couldn't wait to get out and think my own thoughts and just earn money and just be doing something to contribute to society rather than, you know, I read a book and then write an essay on it that has no new information in it at all. I think we also remember, don't we, you know, the teachers that really stick out in our own experience who perhaps did things in a different way against the grain somewhat. I mean, I always go back to my biology teacher, Dave Knott, who all, who at school stuck out like a sore thumb because he took such a different approach. He used to have played Frank Zappa in the biology lab while we were doing practicals, you know, and basically taught us like a university lecturer. And at the time, I remember thinking, God, this is weird. You know, why are these lessons completely different to all our other lessons? And it was only when I got to uni, I went, the penny dropped. It was like, ah, I can see what he was doing there. He was he was sparking our curiosity and flattering our intelligence, you know, and, and encouraging us to be much more mature and adult in our passion for learning. And it was really effective. I think this goes to why we are 
fucked is because that sort of teaching is very hard to measure. And what governments mm. want to do is measure things so they can say they've improved things. So we value what we can measure. And it's very easy relatively to measure whether somebody knows how to, I don't know, do a quadratic equation. It is very hard to measure if somebody has a degree of empathy or knows how to build a team, all that kind of stuff. So so we, we end up creating uh, syllabuses that are easily examinable. You've put that on the government there. How, how much are we responsible? How much, even as a pupil, do you want to be able to say, well, I got these grades and that puts me on that path? And how much as a parent do you want to be able to say, well, my kid's going to go to that school because they've got these results. Well, this is this is, this is why uh, education is so controversial and so difficult to talk about because actually some of the biggest breaks on innovation education are in fact parents themselves because they've been through it, so they've come out the end of it, and they've, they've, they've some of us have this attitude it's like, well, you know, it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you. I ended up all right because I want to justify who I am, and also I'm nervous about anything being changed. So, you know. Uh, a school that I was working with, they were working with young children. They just took all the, the chairs out of the, the classroom because they kind of figured like, you know, six-year-olds don't really like sitting in rows. It's not particularly good for them. They, they learn much more socially. Um, and the biggest, uh, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, I was going to say blowback, but that's not right. <laughs> uh, <the> biggest... <laughs> backdraft, backdraft. Very revealing though of your time at university. <laughs> <laughs> The biggest resistance that, that, to what seems like quite a simple move there was from parents going, you can't take the chairs out of the classroom. And, and if you ask them why, they kind of go, uh, well, it's not a proper school then, is it? You know, so so we've, because we've all been through it, we're all kind of stuck in a view of what it is. It's hard for us to imagine what it could be. It's so high tariff that if you've got a kid in a school, you're kind of thinking, well, do I want them to go to a really academic rigid school? Because at least then they'll be within the system that, you know, the society seems to value at the moment and they'll get the right scores and they'll get the job based on those scores, even if I don't like the system. Or do I want them to go to some free thinking school over here, which is very progressive and liberal, but which is great on the one hand, but then maybe they don't get the the ticks in the boxes to help them get the job they want. And you're you're constantly trapped as a parent wondering which way to go. And it's because we are not having a conversation in the country about what education is actually for. People don't really know. Yeah, it's, it's funny. And get, getting bullied, you know, and emotionally crippled never did me any harm. And I'm the prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on boarding school and the psychological yeah. effect that has and how long it takes to get over that. Can I ask a slightly personal question on how well both of you did academically? Because within that system, it's still easier, I think, to succeed within that system and then veer off and say, well, I'm now a creative than it is to come out of that system without those grades. Did, uh, I'm, I'm making assumptions, but did you both do all right? Well, when I, in my 17th book, I... Um... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, was, I, would, I think I was a classic underachiever at school. Um, I always had the kind of, he's smart, he's got ability, could do better, um, and got a distinctly average sort of set of A-levels. I got a kind of A in art. Well, that wasn't so tough but then I got a kind of C and D in biology and chemistry um so as I say scraped into university but then uh, going back to the point I was making before at university where I was allowed to expand my curiosity and direct my own learning a lot more uh, that's when 
I completely flourished. And it was I was doing marine biology, a subject I was deeply passionate about. And, you know, I got a first and came top of my year. And so it was it was really when I was allowed to spread my wings or my fins as, as I studied the fish. That, don't, uh, don't further that myth about people from Norfolk, mate. There's no webbing. <laughs> yes, exactly. We call it the gene puddle. Um, so yeah similar experience with me I I, I got to uni and I actually wanted to be a musician so I went to Manchester because uh, or Salford University because Manchester at the time was was the Manchester scene I thought great I can play in a bunch of bands there you know so it was playing in bands in that scene and you know the Stone Roses were about and Happy Mondays were about and it was a very exciting time to be there and actually New Order helped me with my final year thesis um <laughs> well, i coached you well no, <laughs> yeah, no in that i i did a computing degree and i wrote my dissertation about the creative use of computers in the process of songwriting but um i also uh, ended up getting a first but i think in marked contrast to ed who's probably good at his subject i cheated what i did <laughs> oh wow what, revelation what i did was i worked out what the examiners wanted and i realized that if you wanted to get a 2-1 you had to know the answer and that was just swatting basically and was extremely boring and soul destroying but i thought well i can do that for six weeks a year if i need to around about exam time but to get a first i realized that you what you need to do was quote experts you had to back everything up with a quote so i would just go and learn the names of everybody who might have quoted about something and then i would make their quotes up to back up my argument because i thought there's no way they're going to read through every book and check whether you know such and such an expert has said this thing and then occasionally i would throw in a name that i just made up like jakobovitz and put a quote next to it and my feeling was that the examiner would read through this guy well, he knows all the right people he knows he has he's referenced all the right people and i've never even heard of jakobovitz so he made clearly an a grade student and that's how i got my first Wow. Well, I mean, I hope somebody is listening who can rescind that decision because I live in a world of retribution. And if your degree is not taken off you in the next week out of that shocking revelation, I dropped out of university after a year, partly because I was just a very unhappy young man. Uh, I can't entirely blame the sort of educational side of it. But I think I was hoping for an answer from university socially and academically that I didn't get. And I just, you know, I, I, I mean, on the, on the broader topic that we're talking about of what is the job of education and is it to create rounded people? I have friends still that I met at university, but broadly, I looked at the other people on my course and thought, fuck me. If I have to spend another four years just competing with you to come out with the same grades. I, I just thought, I, if I leave now, I've got three years on any of you. And if three years down the line, I'm not better in an interview than you because I've gone and done stuff. Whereas you have just stayed on this track and got that tick in that box to say you got the degree, then that's my fault for not making the most of those few years. But they were, they were, I, I couldn't believe the inept. And I'm talking about being able to wash your own clothes and cook your own food, things that aren't now seen as the role of an education, but just thinking, well, who fucking cares what you think of Don Quixote? You cannot look after a pen. So I cannot <laughs> be in a room with you for three years because it's going to drag me down. So I guess it goes back to that thing. And we've talked about it a lot. We've talked about it with energy that, you know, the energy system needs the help of the people at the moment profiting from the current system. Again, with food, you need the food producers who currently profit to help change the system. Now you have, I guess, a system of public schools and, you know, marking and grading that benefits those who come out and do become the leaders who then aren't invested in change. And we're not having a conversation about 
how much better our society and our planet would be if education worked for all those people who get left behind and then don't get to fulfill their potential. I mean, it's absolutely the case that people from more deprived backgrounds suffer disproportionately because they don't get the second chances that people from middle-class backgrounds or, 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 or more wealthy backgrounds get. You know, you can drop out of college, you know, as a middle-class kid and probably still have a safety net around you um, hmm. or school. That's not the case if, you, if you're, you know, from a working-class background. So there's a disproportionate effect. And the problem with that is that policymakers often use that as a justification, they, you know, kind of, well, you know, it's your fault. You didn't work hard enough. Um, it's, le- it's level playing field education. And uh, if you're poor and you're stupid, it's your own fault. And actually, there's a whole bunch of systemic societal stuff that totally disadvantages uh, people from certain backgrounds, which then reinforces the prejudice that people who succeed, who came from privileged backgrounds, has. And you get this sort of ever-widening polarisation. And that's why, you know, if you have any amount of privilege, you know, it really is your job to try and help those without. But the education system, in in many of its sort of underlying assumptions that we don't talk about, is actually about widening that divide and justifying the position of people in the top to go, well, you know, I succeeded, yeah. I'm clever, so therefore I deserve my position in society and I am the school's minister, so there. Yeah. I see that a lot. <laughs> I, but I, see, I mean, I see that a lot. I hear that a lot from some of the, the senior leaders I work with, you know, who have, even in mid-career, only just realising or beginning to appreciate in terms of their self-awareness that they started halfway up the stairs because of all the privileges and advantages they were given. Uh, and, and equally, I think the system can often fail people. My oldest friend, who is, it was quite brilliant. You know, he's got a quite fantastic creative mind. But, you know, he was your classic. Uh, well, now we would probably fully and officially diagnose him with having ADHD. But, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was a clip round the ear and no orange squash because of the way that he was so manic when he was at school, because his curiosity wasn't sated by the way that the school worked, you know. And so he was constantly distracted and finding a joke in everything because that was the way he kind of stimulated his overactive mind. And, and it's a real shame because, as I say, I, I think he's one of the smartest people I know. I mean, it's not about diversity at school. It's about conformity to, mm-hmm. you know, with your streaming people in a particular thing. And you're, you, and we'll get on to how, this, this, how we unfuck ourselves. But um, one of the biggest indicators of what you will achieve at school is A, your expectation of yourself and B, what your teacher expects of you. So if you think you're a C grade student, for instance, and your teacher thinks that, guess what? You're going to get a C. And so many people go into school being told, because they've streamed in certain ways, that that's what you are and that's what you're going to achieve and you should be happy with that and don't complain and keep in your box. And that is a huge waste of human potential. I think the other thing that's really worth mentioning as well that we haven't actually touched on either is the fact that we do so much of our learning indoors, you know, because it's largely easier and simpler not to go outside. And, you know, there was a quite famous book about 10 years or so ago um, where Richard Louvre called Last Child in the Woods, which which has actually just looked at the amount of wild time and uncontrolled play that kids have these days. And it's a fraction of what it was, you know, 20 or 30 years ago when when we were growing up. Um, And he largely associates that with the problems of obesity uh, and attention deficit disorder and even depression in young people. That actually that time in nature of that unstructured, unfettered, uncontrolled play is actually incredibly important, um, both for developing a, a healthy physical kind of lifestyle, but also being able to focus and concentrate and tune in uh, and, and make you happier. And why is that so much less now than it was 20 or 30 years ago? 
Well, I think it's a number of different factors. Part of it is there's a fear of the risk. You know, I'm not going to go down a kind of health and safety culture criticism type mm. of route, but there's definitely a bureaucratic factor that it becomes a bit of a headache to take kids out because there are obviously more risks of going out into the wild. Um, I think it is a partly a time thing with the overloading of the curriculum and, and some of the other bureaucracy that teachers have to deal with, that it requires a special effort on their part. And also I think there's is partly a technology factor, you know, where we've, we've gone into a lot of online education and there's not to say there isn't a great hybridization opportunity where you can bring the best of the wild and the best of nature together with technology so kids using technology to actually experience and interact and identify uh with nature but yeah those those barriers are are there and it's fear time space and tech that kind of constrain our ability to have that wild time and while we're talking about um how fucked the system is what goes along in tandem with this is a devaluation of the profession of teaching itself so there's that classic um quote isn't it those who can't teach and I think parents in lockdown have just realized what a lie that is mm. and what a difficult job teaching is. But when you're constantly devalued as a profession as well, A, you start to um, not attract people who might have otherwise gone into it because the pay is not good enough and, there, and also people want to be liked and respected. And you think, well, if I'm going to be a teacher, I'm going to be getting shit in the pub and I, maybe I don't want that. So so it's this kind of vicious circle of decline where we we devalue kids' creativity we devalue the teachers who who would free up that creativity. We have a scoring system that um, is all about the things you can measure rather than the things we should value. And we've disassociated ourselves with nature. So um, it's not a surprise that, as we said at the beginning, kids go into school full of questions and come out of it you know, with their curiosity so dulled and employers going, what am I going to do with this? God, I had an absolute shudder down my spine while you were talking then at the thought of a sort of Ofsted for comedians. I mean, my entire life is building the gigs up slowly. So you start maybe in front of 50 people, you do 10 minutes for no money, you get the material together, you build it, you then do an entire tour, at the end of which you film one show in the best theatre possible when the show is finished and you say, "That's, that's me, judge me on that. The idea that there's some sort of inspectorate that would turn up on a Wednesday night, a wet Wednesday in Stoke, <laughs> to use a football analogy, and make an assessment on me as a comedian based on how well I did at Stoke Students' Union doing that 20-minute opening set of new material. And that's basically what we're forcing teachers to put up with, isn't it? I'm going to turn up at any point and tell you whether or not you're shit at your job. Yeah, nobody expects the random comedy inquisition. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great analogy, John, because it talks to that point that we come to think of education like a machine. I should be able to turn up on a Tuesday and then a Wednesday and a Thursday. It should be working exactly the same. Therefore, it sees students as kind of these little units that go through this sausage machine. And they should, at any point in the process, you could look at it and go, that's working or it's not working whereas actually it's much more like as you say building a comedy routine whereas you know you're growing and things go three steps forward two steps back and you have to see the thing as a whole and we don't we try and atomize everything because then we think it's easier to manage and the cost of managing it is a massive overhead but the the cognitive and creative cost on the nation is huge yeah mark gets all his insights into this from pink floyd's another brick in the wall video (laughs) well as we all know progressive rock is the biggest educator in the world (laughs) Um, but uh, having said all that because it's very easy to get down on this stuff what you do find is and i think it was helen keller who said it says creative minds can survive any kind of bad training And it is amazing to me that so many of us actually come out of school and do rediscover that thing that 
we love. And some of us have had good school experiences because people sitting and listen to this podcast going, what are you talking about? My school experience was brilliant. I had fantastic teachers. So it's, it's not that it's all bad. It's not that it can't be fixed. And it's not that, you know, we're all horribly, totally damaged by it. But certainly there's a lot of headroom in that system that could be engaged with to make things a lot, lot better for more people. And then if we did that, we might be able to solve some of the problems we have that we talk about on on the rest of these episodes. Mm. It's what we always talk about, isn't it, Mark? Isn't it? when we sort of uh, quoting the William Gibson, the, the future's out there. It's just not evenly distributed yet, and there's probably there's, there is examples and existing examples of fantastic education experiences left, right, and centre. And the trouble is, they perhaps uh, in some ways might be the exception rather than the rule. So let's move on to the unfucking briefly before we do. We're sort of broadly talking about how we. Finesse. I know we've said the system here is fucked, but on a global scale, it's it's undeniable. We we do have a, a you know a very progressed education system. Is it worth talking about the importance of education in a global context where there are countries where education is denied at the most basic level to large groups of society, or is that something for another podcast? Do you think? No, I think that is relevant. I mean, not least because when you know when we try and think systemically um, as. Mark and I obviously try to do. You see the huge role for education um, in actually addressing other issues, as we say. We, we always understand these things are interconnected. And if you look at something like Paul Hawkins' drawdown, when he looks at the you know the top hundred ways we might tackle climate change, for example, two of the top ten there are around female education, um, emancipation, and the liberation of women. You know, so two of the top six, I think, are actually social factors which rely on. Uh, women being able to make informed choices uh, about how many children they might want to have and and to be able to develop their own autonomous careers and independence. Uh, And so these things can actually have massive ramifications socioeconomically um, as well. Mark? So Nelson Mandela said this great thing. He said, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And what I found fascinating about that quote is it's neither positive or negative. So if you have the wrong education system that doesn't encourage creativity, curiosity, citizenship, etc., then you can change the world in a very bad way. And you could argue, for instance, that old-style public school is the wrong sort of education system and it's a weapon which has been used to change the world in a way that many people don't like. If you have an education system that is inclusive, empathetic, teaches us about our place within nature, teaches us systems thinking, teaches us to debate without without partisanship, then you have a very powerful weapon to change the world in a positive way. And I think what's interesting about nations in Africa and Asia is that because they haven't had quite so much formal education previously, there are some quite inventive things happening there because they're not hidebound necessarily by the industrial revolution model of education that we've got here. And and it, depending on the nation, some of them kind of look to, you know, the UK and go, well, you know, they've got Oxford and they've got Cambridge and they're a successful nation, so we should do what they did. Not realising really that that education was built for a different time and now actually we can see it's, it's failing us in many ways. Whereas other nations are going, hmm, no, I think we should do something entirely different here, which is much more in tune with with the modern world and its, and, and its questions and the answers we need to seek. So it's, it's going to play out, I think, quite interestingly in uh, South America and Africa and Asia. So we have inquisitive minds uh, being snuffed out and taught not to answer questions. We have students being trained up for jobs that they are not going to be able to do. We have teachers with their creativity and ingenuity stifled in a system that isn't working. And we have entire countries where education is being used as a weapon to hold people down. I think we should move on to how we unfuck ourselves 
if you've got some solid evidence or some anecdotes, I'll tell you what, guys, I'd slip them in now. <laughs> um, again, the problem is that any solution you are going to suggest or example you're going to put up, um, somebody is going to have a very emotional and probably quite well-argued counter-argument too. So as with everything in this episode, um, you know, I think the things we'll say are like, well, it's, it's worked over here or this looks like quite an interesting thing. The thing is education is every context is different. Every child is different. Every person is different. Mm-hmm. And therefore any, and that's what a great teacher does. A great teacher understands when this student needs a bit of discipline or a bit of just fucking learn that list of stuff and when they need to have their curiosity stimulated and how to do that. And it's the mix and the blend of that. Yeah, I remember I remember having a Jamaican parents evening with one of... Uh, when one of the kids, one of my more entertaining pupils and his mother came in and I said, you know, I'm having quite a lot of problems in class. And his mother just said, well, you must beat him. (laughs) (laughs) I I was trying to explain to her that I really didn't believe, you know, in any form of sort of um, physical punishment. But she was adamant that was the only thing he listened to. And I was like, this is not a kind of uh, pupil-centered approach. I'm picturing like an old school headmaster by a roaring fire listening to this podcast on a gramophone who listens to that and went, yes, yes, finally. (laughs) (laughs) The old ways. So how do we unfuck ourselves? Now, I'm a fan. And again, even this is controversial. As soon as I mention this person's name, some educationists will will probably want to have me hung. I'm a fan of a man called John Hattie, Professor John Hattie. And that's because he tried to de- politicize and de-ideologicalize, is that a word? Um, it is now. The education debate. And what he did was he went and did a meta-analysis uh, of every single study of uh, education that he could find in the world. So he, he went back and he looked at over 70,000 different studies, scientific studies into educational uh, interventions. So, you know, did a school having a uniform or not having a uniform make a difference? Does class sizes make a difference? Is the way you teach make any difference? Now, the problem with that study is because it's, you know, it covers so many different studies and it, it goes over 50 years. And actually, when you look at it, I think it, it includes about 250 million students if you added all the numbers and the studies together. People say, well, you can't compare. This just, this just too difficult. And he's saying, yes, I know that. But what I'm trying to do is get a broad picture. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing some jiggery-poker here. But I think I'm, having looked at all of this over the last 50 years, here is a rough picture of what might work and what might not. And he says, with the caveat that in your situation, of course, this isn't a prescription, but I can tell you that looking at all these things over time, here are some things that seem to consistently work very well, and here are some of the things that don't. So he's really trying to just be this calm, quite intellectual, but also quite creative voice, which you'd think would would play well with everybody. But of course, he then gets attacked by literally everybody, left and right, uh, up and down, because he's dared to say something sort of useful and consultative about education. But so he he went and and found like 195 particular, you know, he listed this. Well, I think there's about 195 things that have been tried in education interventions, you know, whether it's say class sizes, uniform ways of teaching, whatever. And he says, what we what he concluded is that all of it works pretty much. There's very few things that we do in a classroom that don't have some positive effect on a student. Okay. So what he tried to do is, okay, well, if everything kind of works, let's see what works best. And he's used this system called effect sizes. And he basically said, look, you know, if it's an effect size of 0.4, it's average, right? It doesn't really, it's it's kind of an average intervention. Um, And if it's below that, it still works, but it's probably not where you should be putting your money and your effort. And you should be putting your stuff, you know, on the interventions that have effect sizes of over one, like 1.3, 1.4, 1.5. So what's interesting is that all the stuff we think is important in education turns out not to be. 
So all the stuff we talk about, class sizes, actually doesn't have much of an effect, whether we have a uniform, how much money the school gets. In fact, how you run it doesn't have that much of an effect. Uh, and of course, people go, you can't, can't possibly say that. Even he comes out, he says, well, actually, whether you teach in a much more sort of, you know, traditional kind of, you know, here's what you have to learn sort of way, or you teach in a much more kind of curious, let's go and answer some questions together kind of way, that doesn't have a huge amount of difference either. So what does have the huge amount of difference? And we talked about this earlier. The three things that have the biggest difference on the outcome of a student are what the learner expects of themselves, what they think they're good at or how good they are. Then their teacher's assessment of the same. So if your teacher, you, you, you think I'm a, I'm a C grade student, but your, your teacher goes, no, I think you're an A grade student. You are more likely to get a B than a C because your expectations of yourself have been risen. And then the most important thing, is what he calls, because an academic collective teacher efficacy. And what that essentially means is teamwork. How good is the teaching staff good at doing teamwork? So what you find in teaching, and I found this a lot when I first did is teaching is very atomized. It's very rare for a teacher to walk into another teacher's classroom and look at them teaching to either learn from what they're doing or to criticize them, kind of say, oh, I think you could do this bit better. Teachers hardly ever work in teams and they don't talk about students as much as they should as a single thing they just oh you're in my class for this hour and then you're out so the thing he said that worked the best was a teaching cohort that worked in a team and then they worked in a team with their students and then schools that worked in you know in a team-like collaborative way with their local authority where everybody says we're in this together rather than trying to do our own little bit that was the most effective thing now it's not bloody rocket science but we have atomized everything and tried to score everything that we've squeezed out the teamwork because everybody's so concentrated on getting the tick in the box because they've forgotten about the big picture and that's and that's also kind of reinforced by something we had in the post bag, wasn't it? From from that teacher who was talking about his own sort of uh, teamwork as a member of an effective teaching team, and he and he said, uh, he goes for a start, education has got far too serious. What happened to the days when you could hold a European biscuit festival at lunchtime in the Absolutely. start? Absolutely, John Dalton, and, and I have to credit John Dalton. He yeah. tweeted us and said, "I've got some stories. Do you want them?" We said yes. He was one of the few not to get angry or polemic. He tweeted a long email that's not for the podcast because it's uniquely times he screwed up and fell asleep <laughs> on school trips and lost his class in Switzerland. It's an absolute pleasure to read, John, and thank you for it. So uh, talking about unfucking ourselves, somewhere that seems to have embraced this, and we talked about this on the last episode, is... Um, <laughs> what's going on, Ed? <laughs> well, there goes Eddie Irving. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's, uh, it's the activity on Brixton Hill when there's not much traffic. There's no speed cameras, so people just go for a good roar. Keep these in and talk about how fucking badly people are driving in this country at the moment. I go out <laughs> once a week to do my Tesco Big Shop. I drive at or below the speed limit, as is my want, in dark conditions, and I'm sick of having people flying up my ass. I'm going as fast as I can, mate. I've got ice cream in the boot. You think I don't want to get back? You think I want these choc ices to melt and have a three-year-old who can't have a choc ice for another 10 days till daddy goes to Tesco again? Don't need to fly past me in a built-up area. I'll get his reg plate. I'll read it out next week. Let's carry on. To get back to the subject of education, if we may. Yeah. Um, Teach people how to fucking drive, mate. That's what you want to do. Uh, so we, we touched on this, I think, in a previous episode, that, that, that Finland... Uh, actually has consistently has itself ranked as the best education system in the world. It's always Finland. It's self-ranked. Always been- well, I have a tweet. Student here, I'm from Norway. I think the school system works well here in Scandinavia generally. Maybe you guys should just talk about how we're better than anywhere else. 
Well, so, um, so, so in Finland and in Scandinavia generally, they have a, an education system that seems to take on board quite a lot of what John Hattie has been saying, or seem to do it. You know, they have a system where teachers are really well valued and very well paid. They're paid as much as doctors or lawyers. So you don't have that sort of crushing of the of the profession. Um, kids don't start school in Finland until the age of seven. So they're given much more time to develop their curiosity or whatever. When they get to school, they hardly get any homework. They have shorter school days than we have here in the UK. They don't really do these standardized tests, except kind of a, a, a sort of one at the end of secondary school. They get a break. For every hour, 15 minutes, they can run around and get their, their energy off. The curriculum has fewer topics, so it's not all divided. And they're much more sort of about, you know, how do you learn? And as I think we said in the previous podcast, the education system in Finland, its objective is not to create economic units of value, but to create happy citizens. And when you combine all that, and what, what happens is in the rankings on things like literacy and numeracy, Finland is always in the top five anyway, despite having the system that doesn't necessarily say that's the thing by which we're going to govern ourselves. Uh, that's amazing. And I, that, I think it's that learning to love learning. Uh, which sets you up obviously then for a lifetime uh, of curiosity and and I think if you wanted to take my forgetfulness on the three R's uh, and try and extend that into a solution on how we might unfuck ourselves then perhaps it the the three C's of next generation education are creativity compassion and critical thinking Um, and that is despite the warnings around it I think we do need to be much more creative in terms of the the way we get people to think systemically but also the the kind of the compassion and the empathy i've i've seen uh, a couple of my teaching colleagues talk about how important it is to prepare kids for the sort of online world of you know the hostility and humiliation of of social media uh, and so to be able to generate a proper sense of empathy and not allow you know the kind of craziness of the playground to translate into the digital world and then and then clearly the critical thinking as we become much more atomized in our media uh, where there's conspiracy theories flying around left right and center you know the capacity of people to be able to read stuff that they find online objectively and to come to an informed and hopefully sensible balanced opinion is absolutely crucial and so you can imagine that creativity compassion and critical thinking being absolutely fundamental and i think some of that then comes from kids getting more say in how they learn so where they're given a sense of autonomy and self-reliance um and you know perhaps being able to choose the way that they explore particular subjects more because you know unless we're nurturing and raising human beings that can be effective functional citizens and demonstrate kindness and how to be nice to each other then you know we're we're not producing those those people that we want and you know, and again, I, I'm hesitating to use the kind of production line metaphor here, but I do think if you go into the Scandinavian experience and build on what Finland has done, they do have a lot of forest schools. They do have a lot of learning in nature. And it's almost like the default is the kids are outside of the classroom unless they really have to be in the classroom. And that that creates a kind of more free range type of mindset. You know, kids are happy out getting out and dirty and in nature. And, and we get them to think and feel more ecologically like they are part of an interconnected and interdependent system, not little atomized individuals that, that thrive via Instagram. I loved all of that from both of you. And I never like to interrupt the unfucking because I think it's one of the most important pieces and it's certainly one of the most uplifting pieces of the podcast. This episode more than ever, I have a sort of latent sense of how are we going to do that? You know, even with some of the, the sort of more 
viscerally unpleasant topics, I can see a model, and here we can see Scandinavia as a system that we're saying, let's emulate that. What I can't get a feeling of, you know, as as a person here in the UK, where does that first shift happen? Is it as simple as saying, right, we ban the rating system for schools and we ask parents to go in and say, look at the school and get a feeling for the school? Or is it about a government coming in that says, we're going to sweepingly reform all these things? So I have I have a ray of sunshine here. I think. Oh yes. Um, hey. So we talked about you know governments wanting to create education systems that could be measured so they could be ranked. And the big ranking system that everybody looks at is this thing called PISA, which is from the OECD, and it's the Program for International Student Assessment. And what they do is they measure fifteen year olds' ability to use reading, mathematics, and science to meet real life challenges. And so all the league tables are based around you know reading, maths, and science and that kind of stuff. And you know, we've been talking about this, this much wider range of skills. So PISA themselves, and I, I went in to, to see them, I was quite sceptical because I had this mindset they were kind of just all about, you know, they were part of the problem of the machine metaphor. Actually, they're very thoughtful about saying we need to have a new set of criteria to measure things against. Because I think people still want to be measured. We all want to be measured. I, I bet, John, whether you like it or not, if, you, if your gig is sold out or half full, there's a measure in you that goes tick or not tick, A grade or B grade. So we all like to have a measure, right? And so it's a question of what are the measures? Eli Goldratt, the old physicist who became a business guru, said, tell me how you're going to measure me. But if you measure me strangely, don't be surprised if I act perversely. So we need to get real measures there. Now, the good news is that PISA itself is saying the measures we have are probably wrong. And what they're doing at the moment is something, uh, they've just come out with a report called The Future of Education and Skills for Education in 2030. And if you read the report, it says these really hopeful things like um, children entering school in 2018 will need to abandon the notion that resources are limitless and to be exploited. They will need to value common prosperity, sustainability and well-being. They will need to be responsible and empowered, placing collaboration above division and sustainability above short-term gain. And what they're going through now is a process of going, what would be the measures we could put into the international school system such that we would measure education systems on that set of principles rather than the old, quite narrow economic ones? So there is a huge movement going forward. And I think if we get those measures right, and I think PEAS are actually doing quite a good consultative job of getting that right because they're not just involving academics or involving parents or involving students themselves then we might move ourselves out of this and sometime within the next generation have an education system with the measures in that we like that uh, will help us solve the problems we've got and also allow parents still to get the score and the students to get the score that you know that we all still want amen i uh i'm happy to end there as usual we could talk probably for another three hours, but uh, we mustn't push people's limits of endurance. Um, (laughs) Do you want to add anything else? Yeah, John, I'd like to know, um, this podcast and indeed me and Ed, uh, what grade do you give us for this week? Oh, oh. um, Well, you see, now I'm going to show my age, and I suspect my age is different to your age. My instinct was to say A star. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company. I feel it's been humorous and informative. I'm aware now A-star isn't a thing. So is it a one um, <laughs> under the new system? I think now it's one to nine, is it? Where one is good and nine is less good. Or we could just know. go primary school. You could just give us a gold star. I'll give you a sticker with a kingfisher that says very good on it. <laughs> How's that? That's made my week. <laughs> Um, I would say I'll send you one in the post, but given what you've sent me in the post uh, in the past, Ed, I'm, I'm not inclined to send you nice things. I feel I owe you something worse first. <laughs> um, we move on as ever to our conclusion, which is Pointless Futures. 
So this week, the uh, the pointless future is the uh, $158, I believe that's secondhand as well, uh, Star Trek phaser remote for the TV. Uh, so it says, instead of lasers, this gesture-controlled phaser fires infrared energy at your home entertainment system. The remote control stores and understands 36 gestures, as well as voice prompts, and lets you choose between 10 different sounds. Anyone up for a sort of 200-quid TV remote? Yeah, you could shoot Dave. Yeah, I was set. <laughs> or set phases to standby. Oh, that's um, very nice. Are either of you Trekkies, or do you object to the, the idea of a two hundred dollar remote control? My moves look terrible in a in a kind of Captain Kirk Star Trek <laughs> polyester top. So uh, yeah, I, I couldn't be a Trekkie if I wanted to. They were ahead of the curve, there, weren't they? Actually, a lot of football fans now complain that that football kits have gone skin tight to sort of echo the shape of professional footballers. And the average fan now can't wear them. But you're right, Star Trek fans were well ahead of the curve there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very easy to take the piss out of Star Trek. But there is an important thing about Star Trek, which is one of the very few optimistic visions of the future we have in science fiction. So science fiction is actually a much undervalued literary uh, genre where big philosophical issues can be discussed. But if you look at most science fiction, it's incredibly dystopian because... Well, basically, people don't want to watch stuff where the future's worked out nicely. You don't want to have Terminator 3 gardening day where the robots come back from the future to sort of help you mow the lawn. There's nothing interesting about that. So it, I think Star Trek's quite exciting in the way that it's able to put forward a human future that's vaguely optimistic where we've sort of got through it all and are exploring the universe in a, in a, a pretty much benign way. And therefore, um, maybe I do want a $200 um, phaser to make sure I can turn off Piers Morgan. <laughs> so if you say you're, um, you're, you're vaguely up for this, let me read you some of the reviews on Amazon. Uh, 4.7 out of 5 out of 100 reviews. Um, M. Dignam, I have to say, got there first. Set phases too stunning. Even the box it comes in is a sturdy piece of kit. He's very happy with it, or she. Uh, my final review, this is my favourite, from M, 5 star. Forget the remote control feature. It's a phaser. Um, <laughs> it has all the correct sounds. It has a great weight to it. Feels fantastic in the hand. And the dilithium chamber is a gem. Uh, I, I'd end the review there, to be honest, but they've, they've, they've gone on to add, plus dispatched and delivered as specified. There will be more Pointless Futures uh, next week. And as ever, uh, yours have proved fantastic. So if you're aware of any products that uh, didn't make it or that did make it and rightly flopped, uh, then you can send those into us and here are the details of how. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. So that concludes uh, this week's show on education. Uh, we'll be back next week to discuss the world of travel. Uh, our final point of education is a musical education. And we will close on a song from the wonderful Mark Stevenson. Take it away. I think this is unfair. 
Um, and, Ed, and actually, Ed's done one. Well, I'd, actually, say it's, I'd say it's fair. So well, it's fair is exactly what it is. It's very fair to me. I think what we should all note that the, the theme music for this podcast, which opened the very first episode, is in fact an instrumental version of the music from my prog rock band, Quantum Pig, uh, the prog rock band that I run with the wonderful Ian Farragher, um, whose debut album, Songs of Industry and Sunshine, considers many of the issues that we discuss in the podcast and has been universally well reviewed. So uh, I think I'm ahead of the game. Would you say that you and Ian Farragher tie together with with an elegant passion and a subtle glow of power? <laughs> uh, you don't have to say it, mate, because distorted sound mag have already said it. Um, anyway, we will be back next week. Enjoy uh, Quantum Pig. Enjoy your week. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Here's the wonderful Quantum Pig. Fuck me, we'll come out there, shall we? No one's listening beyond this point. (laughs) (laughs) So we gave up dancing to this tune The promised land became the moon But maybe one for the Sleepwalk lonely to the fall No one claps the curtain call Or comes to take us home The dirty old engine How we do love you Light of our lives We can't let you go You power our dreams with Thought we'd got it made on the right side of the game, but we were split. <laughs>